Hum panch hamare pachis, which translates to us five and our 25, is an old vicious phrase increasingly being promoted by Hindu nationalists in India to suggest that Muslim men have many wives and large families, unlike their Hindu counterparts. Today's guest on the Overpopulation Podcast will help dislodge this and other anti-Muslim population myths prevalent in India and across the globe. Welcome to the Overpopulation Podcast, where we tirelessly make overshoot and overpopulation common knowledge. That's the first step in right-sizing the scale of our human footprint so that it is in balance with life on Earth, enabling all species to thrive. I'm Nandita Bajaj, co-host and executive director of Population Balance. And I'm Alan Ware, co-host of the podcast and researcher with Population Balance, an organization that educates about and offers solutions to address the impacts of human overpopulation and overconsumption on the planet, people, and animals. We are excited to welcome Dr. S.Y. Qureshi to our podcast today. And before we dive into that conversation, we have some listener feedback to share. Here's a letter from Gina. She says, fantastic episode. So inspiring. Thank you for airing this segment. Dr. Guarin is such an effective and compassionate communicator. This was always a deep passion of mine as an OBGYN years ago. It was so frustrating to see women have to undergo surgeries for tubal ligation with all the risks and expense that entailed, while their male partners had the opportunity to step forward and have a 15-minute procedure that is nearly risk-free by comparison. Yet so many men simply would not do it. Times are changing in many ways. Now is the time to make vasectomies as accessible as possible to men everywhere, and let's celebrate that opportunity and that choice. Thank you for that, Gina. And here's one from Cliff, who mentions in his email that he got a vasectomy in the early 1970s. Cliff says, your latest podcast is terrific, a masterful work of messaging about a significant topic that deserves wide recognition. Dr. Eskar Guarin is a passionate, holistically oriented doctor providing a much-needed medical procedure, one that offers positive benefits for men, their partners, and the planet. His enthusiasm for his work is inspiring. As evidence in his philosophical goals, eloquent vocal expressions, personal stories, and experiences, he is indeed a dynamic personality. Thanks for that, Cliff. That was in reference to our last podcast episode, One Small Snip for Man, One Giant Leap for Human Kindness. And if you have feedback to share or guest recommendations or a topic you'd really like us to discuss, feel free to write to us using the contact form on our site, populationbalance.org, or by emailing us at podcast at populationbalance.org. Dr. S.Y. Qureshi was the 17th Chief Election Commissioner of India. He figured in the Indian Express list of the 100 most powerful Indians of 2011 and 2012. He was appointed as the Global Ambassador of Democracy, along with the late Kofi Annan in October 2018, by International Institute of Democracy and Electoral Assistance at Stockholm. His book, An Undocumented Wonder, The Making of the Great Indian Election, got rave reviews internationally. His latest book, The Population Myth, Islam, Family Planning, and Politics in India has already created a buzz. It is being translated into several languages. And I'm so excited about our interview today with Dr. Qureshi, who, being from India, not only shares my cultural heritage, but also whose work on healing the Hindu-Muslim divide has been a source of huge inspiration to me and countless others. Let's jump into today's interview with Dr. Qureshi on his latest book, The Population Myth, Islam, Family Planning, and Politics in India. Welcome to the studio, Dr. Qureshi. Alan and I are just so thrilled to have you here. Hello, Alan, and hello, Nandita. The topic of today's conversation, Dr. Qureshi, is your latest book, The Population Myth. And we are excited to uncover the book through the interview today. The population myth reveals how the right-wing spin to population data has given rise to myths about the Muslim rate of growth, often used to stoke majoritarian fears of a demographic skew. And we love that you have done such a deep dive helping to dismantle 
a lot of the myths that are out there. And we will cover many of those myths during the interview today, but we wanted to start by first asking you, what motivated you to write The Population Myth? Thank you, Nandita. My entry into this subject was entirely accidental. In 1995, the then country director of UNFPA, who was Canadian, by the way, white Canadian, so he came to ask me to write a strategy paper for family planning among the Muslims, because the Muslims were lagging behind in family planning. And I had some communication background. My PhD was in communication. So maybe because of that, he came to me and he said, can I write a paper, a strategy paper? I was quite surprised because neither am I an Islamic scholar, nor had I worked in family welfare or health ministry till then. Except, of course, when I'm an IAS officer, uh, if you know the working of the IAS, uh, when I had my first posting as subdivisional officer or subdivisional magistrate, and later on uh, district magistrate in Gurgaon. So that was the time when there was national emergency and um, family planning program was being pushed very aggressively. Mm -hmm. So every district, every subdivision was given some targets for sterilization. Yes. A very sad story in itself, but we were exposed to that. Mm -hmm. So that was my only experience of family planning. So I resisted. I tried to wriggle out of this offer. He was giving me a very good consultancy for 150,000 rupees for one month. My salary, though, there's just 5,000 rupees. So it was a very attractive offer. Mm -hmm. But an inner voice told me that this is a little sensitive subject and I should stay clear of it. But we would not take no for an answer. And then I said, okay, I'll do it gratis. He, he didn't accept that also. He said, no, we always pay and we will pay you. So we agreed on a royal sum of one rupee. Now, whether it is one rupee or one million, it is a financial transaction. Right. And therefore, we have to go through all the procedures, which means I said, you write to me a letter officially and then I'll take permission of Government of India where I was working then. And then we'll sign a contract. And we went through all that. Now, when I said it was an inner voice, we told me not to charge. Mm -hmm. I was proved right four or five years down the line. In the year 2000, I was in London staying with my daughter in her hostel called London House. Mm -hmm. And I got a call from somebody who introduced himself as Dr. Qureshi, same name as me. But he was the president of Muslim Doctors Association of UK. He said, Mr. Qureshi, we have read your paper and we have some issues to discuss with you. I thought the tone was a bit threatening and I didn't want to get beaten up in London. So in order to get out of the situation, I said, sorry, I have a flight tomorrow morning. So the guys landed at the airport, two of them. And the statement that they made still rings my in my mind. Look, Mr. Qureshi, family planning is a Western conspiracy against Islam. Mm. And they hire mercenaries like you through UN agencies to write such papers. Wow. So you will notice that every word would have stuck on me because I was hired by a UN agency and that's what makes me a mercenary. So since I had not taken that even one rupee till today, so I was able to, you know, bounce back on them. And I said, okay, look, this is, even if uh, the Western world is uh, Islamophobic uh, for political reasons, this cannot be their conspiracy. It's not that they are producing 10 children and asking Muslims to restrict the family. That's not the case. And of course, we argued and nothing happened after that. But that is how the book began. I wrote a 32-33 page paper which was very well received and only by photocopying it was circulated quite widely. Mm -hmm. I gave several lectures on the subject, again charging not even a rupee because I thought this is my national contribution to national unity. It is a polarizing subject. I want to counter it by actually uniting the two communities being on the same end of the spectrum. It's interesting that in uh, Prime Minister Modi's 2019 independence speech, he mentioned what he called the reckless population explosion. And I remember my colleagues and I celebrating Modi's comments. But if we had dug deeper and understood better the cultural context, uh, we would know that, as you mentioned in your book, Modi and other members of his political party, the BJP, have for years been blaming Muslims for population growth and stoking fear amongst Hindus against Muslims and the idea that 
they'll eventually outnumber Hindus within India. And as you note in your book, based on population modeling forecast, Muslims will come nowhere close to outnumbering Hindus in the future. And yet the myth persists. And I'm wondering if you could give our listeners a bit of a brief historical background of the divisions between Hindus and Muslims in India. Yes. The first part of your question, you know, the reference uh, by the Prime Minister in his uh, Independence Day speech uh, to population, and he linked it to patriotism, which means the people who have less children are patriotic, those who have more children are unpatriotic. Obviously, you have uh, now realized, I don't want to use the word dubious, but that is the word which is coming to my mind. Now, what he said actually is even factually incorrect. If population is the index of patriotism, the people who have the best family planning in the country are the six, with almost 80% of them adopting family planning. Hmm. And that was the time last year and the whole of last year when sick farmers were sitting in agitation against some farm laws. They were all accused of being Khalistanis. Now, on one hand, because of their low birth rate, they are highly patriotic, and then you call them Khalistanis. That's an irony. That's a paradox. Mm. Now, secondly, if the number of children is the index of patriotism, yes, Muslims are the least patriotic because they have the lowest family planning and the higher TFR, total fertility rate. Mm. But what people don't mention is the second highest TFR and second lowest population acceptance is of the Hindus. Muslim, 45% of Muslims practice family planning according to the last census, which was 2011. And compared to Muslims, 45%, Hindus are 54%. And as I mentioned, six are 79 point something, 80%. So therefore, linking it with patriotism was a wrong idea. I have found that, of course, the fact that Muslims have the least family planning practice is a given and throughout the, the last 70 years, which have studied. But what are the factors? Not the religion, but socioeconomic factors like literacy, particularly of girls, income, and uh, access to services. Now, we have seen when the literacy rate improves, especially of girls, number of children goes down. Mm -hmm. Income goes up, number of uh, children goes down. Services improve, the number of children goes down. And in all these three factors, there are many more, but in all these three factors, Muslims are the most backward. So therefore, what we should be addressing, of course, family planning is a good thing. That is, uh, my thesis, it's a very important thing and everybody should practice family planning, particularly the Muslims if they want to end their backwardness. But we need to address their uh, literacy and uh, their income. Have we heard the right wing ever talking about Muslim education? I haven't. Have they talked of economic empowerment? On the contrary, in the, during the COVID period, we heard repeatedly that there should be economic boycott of the Muslim. Even the vegetable vendor, uh, he should be boycotted and the vegetable should not be bought from him. Now, obviously, if he becomes poor, he will go and produce children and then that you wouldn't like. So, therefore, demanding that Muslims restrict their family planning is a bit hypocritical. So, if you want them to adopt family planning, you should create the condition. And not just for Muslims, for Hindus as well. As I have argued in my book, that it is not a Hindu versus Muslim issue at all. Because... If Muslims are the most backward, the second most backward are the Hindus. Mm. So they are on the same end of the spectrum. They are not opposite ends. They are on the same end. Because their literacy, their income level, their service delivery also is poorer compared to the communities who have done better in family planning. And the history of that division, starting with the beginning of India, didn't Gandhi and earlier prime ministers tried to create greater unity and definitely downplay those divisions. Yeah. And now it seems that Modi has heightened those divisions. Yes, yes. Unfortunately, that is the case. I wish they changed their mind, they changed their stance. In any case, what I have shown through my book, that Muslims, they started very negatively in 1951. First two, three decades, the Muslim population was increasing uh, much faster than the other community. As a result, there was a distortion of uh, demographic balance, which is what they are basing their entire 
hostility on mm. they say that the muslims are multiplying so far that they will become majority in the country and they will capture political power and my book start with the conceding the very first sentence says yes it is true that muslims have the least family planning it is true that the proportion of muslim population increased from 9.8 to 14.2 in 60 years till 2011 mm-hmm. so start with the admission of that but then muslims they started adopting family planning much faster than the hindus mm-hmm. so much so that for the last 30 years the gap has never been more than one child you know the general impression created in people's mind is that if a hindu family has two children muslims have eight children or 10 children i must confess that even i had that kind of an impression when i did my paper 25 years ago but then i found that actually the gap was just one child 1.1 to be precise and since muslims are adopting family planning much faster that gap has now come down to less than half a percent 0.48 to be precise according to national family health survey number 4 so things are looking up and because muslim education is also improved muslim economy is also improving the determining factors being these three socio economic factors they need to be addressed and that therein lies the solution yeah you mentioned already a few of these myths a uh, couple of the ones you've mentioned is the muslims produce too many children and are solely responsible for population explosion one of the myths is that there's an organized conspiracy among muslims to overtake the hindu population to capture political power we see those types of messages floating around and whatsapp and in internet chains there's a lot of fake news being shared you also mentioned that the muslim population growth is upsetting the demographic balance that's another myth the last one that you talk about also is that muslims uh, use polygamy to increase population and that islam is against family planning can you elaborate both of those Yes in fact the Mr Modi when he was the chief minister of Gujarat in 2002 just after the infamous Godra riots he made this statement hum panch hamare 25 we five and our 25 implying that me and my four wives make five and together we produce 25 children today's slogan is we four and our 40 that is something which has penetrated the minds of people deep inside mm-hmm. in fact not only the hindus even muslims believe that polygamy is widespread among the muslims whereas you know when i studied the issue to my surprise i found that polygamy in india is just not possible in fact there is a little bit of inconsistent position there there was one study in 1975 conducted by government of india mind you it found that every community in india had some polygamy and the tribals were about 16% and buddhist jains and others and muslims were the least polygamous wow that itself was surprising i have to believe that islam is for polygamy and muslims are polygamous but we found that they were the least polygamous now in order to see whether this was just one off freak study mm-hmm. i went back to the census of 1931 1941 and 1951 mm-hmm. and i found exactly the same trend mm-hmm. had persisted for those 30 years which was reflected in 1975 study so therefore to say that muslims are polygamous is wrong there is a kind of a paradox among the muslims also mm-hmm. now that i know i'm muslim they're not polygamous why am i willing to fight for my right for polygamy and i'm willing to die for it when i don't even practice it mm-hmm. now secondly in india actually polygamy is just not possible why because the gender ratio is adverse for 1000 men the latest figure was 2 years ago 922 women hmm. and this has been the trend for the last 120 years hmm. without exception so now if there are only 920 women available for 1000 men which means 80 men will not even have one wife 
Right. Where will I get my second and third and fourth wife mm-hmm. in that context? Right. Right. It's not possible. Nandita says we are on the subject of polygamy, and yeah, you are whether Islam is against. You know, I have never come across any Muslim cleric or Maulana saying that Muslim should produce many children to overtake the Hindu population. Never. Hmm. Although I have heard them oppose and criticize family planning sure. for a different reason, because they believe that Islam is against family planning erroneously, and I have tried to dispel their myth also there that Islam is not against family planning. In fact, I have proved by quoting the verses from the Quran and Hadith, which is the traditions of the Prophet. That Islam actually is the pioneer of the subject of family planning. You'll be surprised. 1400 years ago, there was no population pressure mm-hmm. anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And that is where Quran is talking of, you know, rights of children, rights of women to good health, a good upbringing. And these concepts of family planning are being mentioned in the Quran and in the Hadith. So if Mullahs believe and the Maulanas believe that Islam is against family planning, they are wrong and that those myths have to be dispelled. Right. In fact, if I may mention, you know, number one, there is no prohibition of family planning in the entire Quran. Hmm. Whereas Quran has prohibited drinking, mm-hmm. Quran has prohibited sex outside marriage, mm-hmm. Quran has prohibited taking interest on loans. So, and in fact, there is a verse in the Quran where Allah is saying that whatever I wanted you not to do, I have explained to you in detail. Now, it cannot be anybody's case that God is forgetful and he forgot to mention about family planning. He wanted to ban it, but he forgot about it. (laughs) That cannot be anybody's case. (laughs) Right. So, and God himself is saying, whatever I wanted to ban for you, I banned. Therefore, if he has kept quiet about the family planning and he has not banned it, that means family planning is valid in Islam. Right. Now, there are only interpretations of various verses of the Quran. Some are for, some are against. Mm -hmm. Now, for instance, there is one verse of the Quran that those days the pre-Islamic Arabs, they used to bury their daughters alive because they thought uh, having daughters is a curse and they will not be able to bring them up. They don't have the money. They don't have the resources. So they used to bury them alive. In that context, the verse was revealed on the Prophet and it says, advise people not to bury their daughters. It's a crime. Because if they are born, they should not fear, we will feed them. God used the word we for himself, so we will feed them. So many people think that God has taken guarantee for feeding, therefore family planning is not required right. because if 10 children are born, they will all be fed. Yes. No, that's a wrong context. Yes. In fact, one verse is addressing the young people. Okay, young people, when Allah gives you the means... You must marry because it will keep you looking at lust at other women. Hmm. Now, one young man went to the prophet protesting. He said, look, I'm a poor man. I don't have the money. I don't have the resources, but I have my sexual needs. Mm -hmm. What should I do? So prophet repeated that verse that till you have the means to marry and uh, bring up a household, you should resort to fasting because fasting suppresses sexual desire. Hmm. Now, together, the Quran and then Hadith, and then uh, finally there was one more Hadith saying of the Prophet, one man who had many children went to the Prophet, and he said, I have had enough, and I don't want any more children, mm-hmm. and I want to practice Azal. Al-Azal was coitus interruptus, or the withdrawal method in common language. Mm-hmm. So I want to practice that method to restrict my family. I don't want any more children. But a Jew was saying that that is a minor infanticide that is killing the sperm. So Prophet said, no, no, the Jew is wrong. The Jew is wrong. It is not infanticide, which means he go ahead and practice Al-Azal. Mm-hmm. So together, these two verses, uh, Hadith and verse from the Quran, to me, are a complete prescription for family planning. Right. And there are many more. I've mentioned all of them, for and against and everything, and my conclusion out of them. One point which you had raised, but I've not yet answered, yeah. is uh, the myth among the Muslims about the right of polygamy. There is only one verse in the whole Quran which refers to multiple wives. Mm-hmm. And this is how it goes. You can marry two, three, or four. All right. So as soon as I read that, I go rushing and go looking for my second and third and fourth wife. But what follows is, provided you can treat them with absolute equality, which is not easy. Therefore, you are advised to marry only one. Right. Now here, every Molana, every Islamic cleric mentions that actually polygamy in Islam 
is only permitted. It is not an injunction that you should have multiple wives. It's only a permission and that too with a limit of four. You can't marry five. Hmm. So the permission which is conditional on treating women equally, which is very difficult. Now, my complaint against the Muslim clerics is that they have forgotten the first part of this verse in the Quran. <laughs> These a couple of verses in the Quran were in the context of the orphans and the widows. Hmm. Where Allah is saying that treat the orphans and the widows by implication. There used to be lots of widows because of uh, tribal warfare. Men would be killed and women uh, with children will be left behind. So Allah is saying that treat the orphans with justice. Do not misappropriate their property. Do not substitute their good things with your bad things. And ideally, from among those orphans, you can marry two, three or four. Therefore, the first condition, according to me, marry those orphans and the widows, provided you can treat them equally. Right. Now, what is this concept of equally? That I marry a widow and send her to the kitchen to wash my utensils, whereas my first wife, the original wife, become the queen. That is not the intention. That uh, absolute equality is the second condition. So that is something which the Muslims need to understand and keep away from polygamy. Yeah, I just find it so interesting that the myth is being obviously perpetuated through Islamophobic narratives by nationalist Hindus and by people from all around the world obviously. But then there's also a misinterpretation of the Quran among the Muslim leaders too. And that's perpetuating the myth even more. The other thing that I found very interesting was what you said about God, that God will protect the children when they are born, and that people misinterpreted that to think that we can have as many children as we want, even if we are not able to take care of them, because God will take care of them. And in our work, we see a lot of what we call fatalism, is this belief that even if it puts the mother's life at risk, the child's life at risk, sometimes there's this belief that this is what God wants. And what you are saying is that's a misinterpretation of the Quran because God doesn't want for you to bring children that you cannot care for, that you cannot feed and shelter. And it's really great that you've clarified that. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad you got it absolutely accurately the way I meant it. And you, in fact, articulated it even better than me. Thank you. So as you note in the book, when young girls and women have more educational opportunities, they tend to choose smaller families. And you also note that Muslim women generally have lower educational attainment than women that are Hindu or of other religious affiliations. Why do you think those disparities exist in educational opportunities? Well, you know, it's a very good point. One is the opportunity, the other is the attitude. It is a great paradox that Islam, which emphasizes education from cradle to grave, should have its followers who are the least educated. In fact, the very first word of the Quran, uh, which was revealed on the Prophet, was Iqra. Read, O Prophet. Mm-hmm. That's how it begins. And there are verses and there are the hadith traditions of the Prophet where education of Muslim girls and boys is made compulsory, mandatory for them to acquire education. And despite that, not only the girls, but even the Muslim boys are poor in education. We should address this. We should have been the most educated because that is the expectation of the Quran. Why is it that we are the least educated? It's a matter of shame for us. And But fortunately, the realization is now happening. Since 1992, after the demolition of the Babri Masjid, there was a bit of a reawakening among the Muslims and they realized that instead of just complaining about victimhood, they need to focus on their education and they focus on their economic betterment by their own efforts. So the community and individual effort among the Muslims has been focused on improving the quality of education, particularly in the southern states, which is why, in fact, interestingly, 25 states in the country out of 28, Muslims have better birth rate than Hindus of Bihar. Hmm. So why I'm comparing 25 states with one state? Because Bihar 
is kind of a model of backwardness mm-hmm. they are backward in literacy in income in uh, health uh, infrastructure so even the hindus there are backward but the fact that in 25 state muslims are better in family planning than hindus of bihar what does it prove that religion is not against it if religion was against family planning no state would be better than bihar they will always be behind bihar or up but no and i believe that the southern state the muslims are better practicing muslim than muslims of my part of the country the north india so if they are good muslims and they are practicing family planning that is a good lesson there mm-hmm. well that's hopeful and i wonder how much of it is an urban rural divide or muslims more rural on general than hindu no muslims are more urban oh. but the urban rural divide cuts across religion that is for all communities yeah because in so many countries you see that as they urbanize they have smaller families mm. just because more children isn't economically advantageous as much in an urban setting yeah correct muslims are more in town than in villages a little more to that extent they have an advantage of urban development yeah and as you mentioned you know if it really were about religion then why would we be seeing such a disparity between Bihar and some of the other states between Hindu fertility rate and the Muslim fertility rate but you also mention in your book uh, that there are several Muslim countries like Iran and Egypt Indonesia and Bangladesh that have had very successful family planning efforts yes before coming to those countries let me make one more point in continuation of the earlier point sure that i tried to prove that there is no hindu rate of growth or a muslim rate of growth hmm. now i'll give you the range for instance for the muslim in tamil nadu they are 1.74 tfr and it goes up and up and in bihar it is 4.11 now which one of these would you call muslim rate of growth right. 1.74 or 4.11 similarly among the hindus 1.42 in kerala hmm. and it goes up to 3.29 in bihar now which one is the hindu rate therefore since every state has different socio economic conditions and the rate of growth is different we cannot generalize yes but the common factor is that where literacy and income and services have improved the family planning has been a success the second point about the country in fact i have written a chapter on family planning among the muslim countries mm-hmm. 8 10 muslim countries again uh, there are surprises there the most conservative muslim country in the world iran has the best family planning in the world mm-hmm. not just in the muslim world but in the entire world 80% of the people practice family planning there now if islam was a deterrent surely the clerics of iran would not have allowed them to adopt it as a state policy yeah but as a state policy iran indonesia malaysia and recently bangladesh which was carved out of pakistan now pakistan continued to have a high birth rate but the bangladeshi ulama the scholars adopted a very progressive approach and taking a lesson from indonesian model where the imams of mosques became the best preachers of family planning mm-hmm. and uh, in the friday sermon which is so important for the muslim friday sermons in indonesia and bangladesh preached family planning as a result bangladesh has achieved better figures than india wow and they are all overwhelming muslim majority so that's a very important lesson that there are no political compulsion there from the clerics or from the political parties which is where the lesson for us is that we should not shy away from dealing with faith leaders faith leaders whether you like it or not are influential absolutely they are very powerful mm-hmm. so it is good to have them on your side and you have to reach out to them in fact i have volunteered that even if our faith leaders our uh, molanas feel that islam is against family planning i have a complete resource book developed for them which will be carved out of my book I volunteered to do it uh, pro bono quoting verses from the Quran and from hadith what exactly Islam is saying so they should know that that's an incredible service and for all of our listeners who have any contact with any Islamic leaders we welcome you to reach out to us to grab this resource from Dr Qureshi and if there are ways in which Dr Qureshi we can help spread this message beyond this podcast 
We would love to do that. You're absolutely right that religious leaders have a lot of influence. And one simple thing which can be done is we can send some of our religious leaders to Iran, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Bangladesh. And conversely, we can invite religious leaders from those countries to come and address our uh, religious leaders. So this exchange of knowledge and experience will be extremely beneficial and the cost is nominal. Yes, I think that's an excellent suggestion. And um, to go further into what's happening currently in India, but not only in India, we have seen an ethnic replacement fear in right-wing groups in Europe. We are seeing that in the U.S. and in many countries around the world. But particularly in India, we are seeing Prime Minister Modi and the BJP party have helped stoke those fears and perpetuating them. What do you think is the motivation for this fear? And uh, how have the facts become so unaligned from the perception? Uh, You know, this propaganda has been around for a long time, 50, 60 years, maybe more, Mm -hmm. because it started with the two-nation theory where Hindus believed that uh, Hindus and Muslims are two nations, and some sections of the Muslims believe that also, which is why partition took place. Particularly after partition, many Hindus believe that the partition story is unfinished. Uh, Since Muslim state was created, every Muslim should go to Pakistan. And what are they doing in India? And this is a slogan which appeals to most Hindus. Yes. What they don't realize is that when the election to choose between India and Pakistan took place, just about 3 or 4% voters voted. It was confined to limited people. And the people uh, who voted against it were also overwhelming. The Muslim clerical organization called Jamiyatul Ulama Hind of Deoband, they opposed the partition tooth and nail. Hmm. They said, this is our birthplace. So therefore, the people who stayed back, they stayed back by choice, opting for India as the preferred uh, home. Sure. Which is not acceptable to some. Yeah. Now, Muslims are disturbing their demographic balance. That is uh, what I have analyzed. It is true to some extent in the first three or four decades, about four percentage point increase in Muslim population happened from 9.8 to 14.2. Mm-hmm. And Hindus came down from 84.2 to 79.8. Mm-hmm. Now, this reduction of 4.2 was distributed over all the religious communities, mostly the Muslims granted that. But for the last 30 years, the gap has not been more than one child and now it has come down to half a child. So the Muslims are actually catching up on family planning. Now, 4% point increase in 60 years. Now, a 9% population becoming 51% to become majority will require 600 more years if nothing else changes. If the same trend which has continued for the last 60 years continues, it will take 600 years. But the propaganda is, oh, Muslims are coming tomorrow, day after. You know, that is the kind of propaganda which is happening. Now, in fact, uh, very interestingly, to clinch this argument, I requested a great mathematician in Delhi, Professor Dinesh Singh, who was the vice chancellor of Delhi University till uh, three, four years ago. And I asked him to... Uh, prepare a mathematical model for me. I said, I'm giving you my 70-year data and tell me at this rate, how soon will I capture power? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) my community. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Right. So he had given a graph and he said, forget about it, brother. Forget about it, not for 1,000 years. Wow. To uh, in simpler term statistics, in 1951, the gap between the Hindus and Muslims was 30 crores, 300 million alan. Nandita understand crores. <laughs> right. Uh, for your benefit, 300 million. Now the gap has gone up to 800 million. Now there are 800 million more Hindus than they were in 1951. They were only 300 million. And that is how Muslims are overtaking Hindus. You no, know, the absurdity of this claim comes out very loud and clear yeah. through the statistics and this mathematical model. It's irrefutable of what you're bringing to the forefront. And a book like this was much needed. It came out at just the right time. Although you might say 25 years ago when you started doing the work, 
Maybe that was the right time. Yes, I think that that was the right time. Yes. And why it took me 25 years? I'm not so dull and so stupid. <laughs> it just so happened that this was not my main subject. And secondly, when my friend said that your paper is good and you should expand it into a book, when I started writing it, every time I came near a conclusion, the new NFHS data will come in. Oh, yes. You know, every five years we have NFHS, so I'll have to go through it all over again to see whether... My findings have been turned upside down, <laughs> right. but fortunately, they were only getting reiterated. So now we have NFHS 4. NFHS 5 is also around the corner, and thank God my book has come out before that. If I had waited for NFHS 5, then another five years would have been added. <laughs> so that's why it took so long, but there is a time for everything. Better late than never. Yes. Now the challenge for me, you know, I'm a lone voice against a very, very organized propaganda machine, the biggest propaganda machine of the world, which is where Nandita, people like you, your voice, you ask me the question how to take this message forward. It is for all of you to think. Yes. In fact, you know, my basic spirit of the book, it may sound like anti-Hindu, but it is not. It is actually very pro-India. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, if you open the first page, the dedication of my book is to the unity and diversity, our unique identity. Uh, I'm trying to bring the communities uh, together so that we progress together in harmony. In fact, the right wing has been appealing to the Hindus. That is a matter of your concern as a population institute. Yes. They've been appealing to Hindus to produce eight or ten children to compete with the Muslims. Yeah. Fortunately, no Hindu has taken them seriously. The response to my book from the Hindus has been excellent. Yes. I have often said that India is secular because Hindus are secular. The basic ethos of India and Hindus is secular. And one proof is I mentioned to you about the partition. When Pakistan was born and in 1951, when we adopted the Republican model, we could have easily chosen a Hindu Rashtra. Mm -hmm. Nobody would have stopped them because a Muslim country had been created. So obviously the other part would have been legitimately a Hindu country. Yes. But the Constituent Assembly with 83% Hindus unanimously opted for a secular constitution. Wow. So that shows basically India is secular, Hindus are secular, which is why the response to my book instead of hostility and abuse, it is extremely positive. And now point is how to take this message across. Yes. And the original provocation, you asked me the first question, why did I think of writing this? When I mentioned UNFPA country director asked me to write a strategy paper. Yes. How to promote family planning among the Muslims. By the way, the last chapter of my book, is an answer to his request. The chapter is propagating family planning among the Muslims. And I'm teaching government of India how to do it. They have failed. I'm teaching them how to do it. Yeah, I think it's great. Well, you definitely want to unify such a diverse country as India and unify it as a democracy. And the fact that you were chief election commissioner of India in 2012, that's the most populous democracy on the planet. You were overseeing elections. Yes. That must have been an enormous scale and a challenging task administratively. Like you, we also believe that represented democracy is the best political system for advancing social justice. And what do you see as the current obstacles as a past election commissioner to achieving more just and equitable democracy in India? Oh, yeah, good question. But before that, Nandita, may I ask you, what is the population of Canada? Close to 40 million now. 40 million, Okay. You know, the, Alan mentioned that this is not only the largest election in the world, it is the biggest management event of any kind in the world. Do you know 12 million people is our staff? Wow. Wow. And they're all government servants. This is larger than <laughs> population of various countries. Gosh. And yes. they are supposed to deliver zero error election year after year. And we know the skill and art of taking work out of them, totally neutral and free and fair, credible election. I wrote a book called An Undocumented Wonder, The Making of the Great Indian Election in 2014. The book is doing so well that its fifth edition came out last year. 
and I keep on updating it with the latest information. Mm-hmm. So it's a beautiful and unique exercise managing 12 million people and about a billion voters and 1 million polling stations. How we organize it, it is mind boggling. At the same time, it has become so routine with us that a good election doesn't make any news any longer. A bad election does. We are almost on autopilot because of our experience. In fact, inspired by this and on the demand of our colleagues worldwide, I had set up in 2011 an institute called India International Institute of Democracy and Election Management. Hmm. Despite some hostility and opposition of various quarters as happens to every new idea, I'm very happy to report to you, Nandita, that 93 countries of the world have received training from us in the last seven, eight years. And half of them, their entire commissioners coming and learning from us. So that is uh, the leadership role which uh, India has played in the election. At the same time, a good election is not necessarily good democracy. The Economist in its Democracy Index has rated India repeatedly for the last 20 years as a flawed democracy. Hmm. When I was doing research for my book and when I came across this term flawed democracy, I was initially very upset. And like every Indian, my first impulsive reaction was, this must be a Western conspiracy to show India down. Right. So, and you know, they must have created parameters in such a way that we look bad. But then I realized, actually, we were down in democracy index. Election, we were getting 9.8 out of 10 marks year after year. Right. Now, the fact that many MPs with uh, criminal cases pending against them keep on getting elected, And the fact that women's participation is low, the fact that only 10% of the MPs and MLAs are women, the fact that 300 million people are illiterate. Now, these are the things which are bringing the country down. Sure. And we need to address that on top priority. It's just refreshing to be able to admit what's not going right, but also point to what are some of the determinants of the failing democracy. It's the lack of education. It's the lack of women's empowerment. It's the lack of opportunities being given to the right people. And it's a lot of political propaganda that is feeding into some of these things. And we find, especially in the US and Canada, there's been a lot of alarmism around not enough children being born. And now there's lots of pressure being placed on people to have more children because the ultimate parameter that measures success in a lot of countries or almost every country around the world is money, the economy. And it's a shame when that economy has become the guiding principle of planetary success when all of the other parameters are failing. And, you know, you mentioned earlier with Iran being so good in their family planning policies, but now Iran has gone back And now they're blocking family planning. They're boycotting people from accessing services because they want to produce more children, even if people don't want them, even if people don't have the resources to take care of them. Mm. It's just so the country can have more people. But that's not just happening in Iran. It's happening in countries around the world, irrespective of religion. Yes, quite right. When there is a decline in population, they get worried and they need to arrest that decline. So I've read that you organize jam sessions at home <laughs> and that you've even invented a special guitar. And that was particularly interesting to me because I play guitar and oh, I have jam sessions. That's nice. I was wondering what kind of guitar is this that you've invented? I made five guitars, electric guitars. Wow. Although um, I love a Spanish guitar, but since Hawaiian guitar was easy to make because it doesn't have frets, it's only painted frets. So I made a Hawaiian guitar initially because I could not afford to buy a guitar then. I was poor. Now that I can buy guitars, I cannot play. So (laughs) those days I could play, but I could not buy. Now, of course, I have Fender guitars, but these days I play the keyboard because that's a one-man band. And I still have a rock band with former National Security Advisor and Foreign Secretary of India. Oh, wow. He's our lead singer and rhythm guitarist. I play the 
keyboard and uh, play the guitar. We are both fan of the Beatles. I'm a fan of the Shadows, Cliff Richard and the Shadows. Oh, yes, yeah, uh, so am I. <laughs> I'm a big Beatle maniac. And in fact, uh, I'll send you a picture of uh, mine with Hank Marvin. The best guitarist the world has produced is Hank Marvin. So I went to see their concert when 50 years reunion in 2009. Uh. So I booked a ticket a year in advance. I went to London. I had the show. Then I had arranged a, uh, a special meeting with Hank Marvin. We have a lovely photograph with him, which is on my wall. But we have refused to grow out of the music of the 60s and 70s. We play and we love it. We enjoy it every moment. Classic stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. I hope I'm still doing it in a few years. I think I will. In fact, you know, people used to ask me the secret of my sanity. <laughs> and my answer is two things. My two hobbies. One, music. The other, reading and writing. I've written several books and I keep writing articles regularly. That keeps me sane. Uh, I'm 74, but I feel much younger. What guitar do you play, Alan? Steel string acoustic and a Stratocaster, and I studied classical for a while. Oh, so all right. I, I played different kinds and different styles, but lately it's been more the steel string acoustic and some rock and pop in a band. Wow, very nice, very, very nice. Actually, music has no retirement age. That is the beauty of it. Right. Yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. you play all your life. And those of our bureaucrat uh, friends uh, who did not have any hobby, so when they retired, suddenly they are at a loss. Yes. And in fact, many of them don't even survive. But if you have a hobby which will keep you ticking, nothing like it. I love it. Yeah. Hey, Dr. Krishi, it was such a delight to have you today with us. And thank you so much for a very enlightening conversation. Uh, uh, we learned so much from your book and even more from this conversation And I know our listeners will appreciate the depth and the breadth of knowledge that you have shared with us. And we will do our work in helping to dismantle a lot of these terrible myths. Thank you so much for being here with us. Wow. Dr. Qureshi, he's worked so hard throughout his entire life to help maintain a more cohesive and democratic India. And as a Muslim, he's experienced at a more personal level all the misunderstandings and discrimination that's often experienced by religious minorities in countries all over the world. Yeah. And as we discussed during the interview, his book has come at a particularly important time in India's history when, as you can see, the generally stable, multi-ethnic, multi-religious fabric of the country has come under threat, especially with Mr. Modi's leadership, where the anti-Muslim sentiment has become blatantly more mainstream and public. So we really hope this book will continue to help dismantle the myths being promulgated by the anti-Muslim groups in India and across the globe. Well, that's it for this edition of the Overpopulation Podcast. Visit populationbalance.org to learn more And if you feel inspired by our work, please consider supporting us using the donate button. Until next time, I'm Nandita Bajaj, thanking you for your interest in our work and also for all your efforts in sustaining our beautiful, life-giving planet.